you're listening to the Sunday Morning Sermon from First Baptist Church Seminole, Oklahoma. Our responsive reading today comes from the Baptist Hymnal, number 707. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I bid everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. In one body, we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service our servant, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who contributes in, uh, liberally, he who gives aid with zeal, he who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Never flag in zeal. Be aglow with the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so thankful to be standing here this morning. I, the last couple of weeks, you know, it's been a blessing to be on church on Sunday morning and to be in God's house the first day of, of 2023. I just think that's, of course, it is rare. I don't know how often it happens, but uh, I think that that is a blessing for us to be able to experience this year. Um, I need to announce that all the kids, Penny's back there fixing to throw something at me. Uh, if your kids want to go to jam, they're having jam this morning. So you guys go ahead and head that way. Jesus and me, you'll have a lot of fun. They'll teach you a lot of good things about our Savior. And hopefully none of you end up in timeout like I used to always end up. You know, today's a special day for me. Uh, we have Celebrate Recovery, of course, on Sunday night. It's the best place to be on a Sunday night. And uh, I, uh, I get to pick up my 26-year coin tonight. 26 years since Jesus. Amen. 26 years since the Lord changed my life forever. And I'll never forget that day. So thankful for it. Every new year, I get to celebrate that. It was January the 5th of 1997 in a little church up in the mountains in North Carolina where I surrendered. I just, on my knees, and I asked God to help me. I asked him to help me to 
stop using alcohol and drugs. And more than that, I asked him to help me with my sinful condition. I asked him to forgive me. And I surrendered my life to him that night. And I've never been the same. And he'll do the same for you if that's a place that you might be in your life, whether you are a, a born-again Christian like I was at the time, but running from God, or maybe you have uh, just kind of sit there in the pew and done nothing for years. That's not biblically what a Christian is. A believer in Christ, we are to be on the battle lines serving. Paul called uh, many of his followers uh, a good soldier for Jesus Christ. And so uh, this, this uh, sermon this morning talks about humility. The title really is called United in Humility. And you might be able to tell by some of the songs we've already sang, the scriptures that were read, songs we'll sing later. There's one we're going to sing in a little bit called Gentle and Lowly. Oh, it's just the words are... I bet you I've listened to it 20 times this week as I've been studying and, and praying. And uh, to be more like our Savior who is gentle and lowly. But as we look at a new year, I know a lot of you and myself, we, might, we may make commitments each year. Maybe to do better with our diet, our health, maybe our finances, our relationships. The list goes on. How many of you make New Year's resolutions? Anybody? Okay, good. They're, they're all right to do. You don't be ashamed of that. But uh, how many have already broke your, I mean, some of it is your diet and you ate donuts out there. You can thank the church for already sidetracking you. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say this next, this next year I want to be more humble or I want to be a servant to people. I want to put other people before myself. I mean, you might have made that resolution in the past, but I don't remember doing that myself. I don't remember hearing anybody do that. And, and if somebody did, they're more than likely saying it with the wrong motivation, which makes them prideful. You know, humility is something we admire in others, but we really don't like to practice it ourselves. There are many examples in the Bible of humility. You're probably thinking of some of them, even as I'm up here speaking. But one of them that speaks to my heart and I love to hear sermons preached on is found in Luke 18. And we're not turning there, but you're welcome to turn there in your Bible. But I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it. But, you know, it's the story of two men that go to the temple to pray. They come to church to pray. And one man is a religious man and the other is, is a publican, a tax collector. Many times in the Bible, a publican or a tax collector is, is called a sinner. The Pharisee or the religious man, he spent his time praying praising himself. He gave himself credit for giving money to the church, but he did his religious obligations. And of course, he said, and I'm thankful I'm not as sinful as that publican back there in the back row. The publican, he stood afar off on the outer edges of the temple, it says, and he was ashamed to even approach God and would not even raise his head. And he just simply... He had no praise for his works. He just beat his chest. He just kept beating his chest and begging for God's mercy. He knew he was a sinner in need of mercy. So what brought self-righteousness to the Pharisee and humility to this publican is the standard of righteousness they looked at. You know, the Pharisee is like many of us do at times in our 
self-righteousness. We feel like that uh, we look at others as the standard. We feel like that if we've surpassed others in our righteousness, then God must be pretty pleased with us. But the tax collector, he knew that God is the standard. And he knew it was a standard that he could never reach. He knew that he fell well short and his only hope was to call out to God for mercy. Just to fall into God's grace. Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now he realized his poor, hopeless, spiritual condition and his need for a savior. Everybody must get to that point to be born again. We realize that we have nothing to offer for our forgiveness. We have nothing to offer for our redemption. It was done on a cross 2,000 years ago where our Savior took our place. So as we think about humility, you know, how do we become humble? 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 tells us to clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, verse 6 tells us. You know, when I was studying, I was reading about what it means to clothe yourself or to gird yourself. And this refers in this passage to a white scarf or an apron that a slave wore. This, this white cloth or apron, it fastened to the girdle of their vest. It was like, you know, like you'd see a woman wearing an apron. And this apron distinguished this slave from a free man. Girding ourselves with humility is like it's like putting on the servant's clothing, putting on this apron, showing our subjection, our submissiveness to Christ as we submit also to one another. We stand out, we're marked as we clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. You know, this picture brings to my mind the night before Christ's crucifixion when he girded himself with the, the Bible calls it, uh, the towel. He girded himself in humility with this servant's towel around his waist and he washed his disciples' feet, it says, and he dried them with this towel. This was a task that was reserved for the lowest of servants. Verse 6 there in First Peter says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. So often in Paul's writings, he'll, he'll give God different types of human characteristics hands and feet and eyes and ears and you know humbling ourselves starts with us surrendering to God in full dependence in full confidence dismissing reliance upon self upon others upon material things this is hard for us in our western culture because we have so much we're taught growing up to be self-sufficient Take care of yourself. Don't depend on anybody else. You know, I was reading that one study, this amazed me, said that the poorest 20% of Americans, if they were one nation, they would be one of the richest nations in the world. That's how much our country has. It leaves us little to, to think we need anything else. Do we need a Savior? But we're only in thinking in terms of, of worldly things, not the spiritual he says, under the mighty hand of God, our, our hands are used to accomplish things. Our hands are used for a purpose or a plan. 
We use them to work, to make things, we, even as far as to brush our teeth. And Paul used these words, uh-oh. There we go. <laughs> Paul used these words under the mighty hand of God, and he was speaking of the purpose God has for us, has for each one of us, his kingdom purpose. His purpose was never for us to come Sunday after Sunday and never open our Bible, never share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ with others. That was never his purpose. His purpose is us as, as believers is to come here and, and worship God and be fed the word of God and be encouraged and be strengthened to go out. Go outside these walls and lead people to the Savior. We will never live this purpose without surrendering to God in full dependence under the mighty hand of God. As we submit ourselves to God and to one another, God makes us humble. This way we can find true purpose in this life as a follower of Jesus Christ. I share this several times in Celebrate Recovery on Sunday nights when several of our lessons are, have to do with humility and, and servanthood. The writer J.R. Packer, he wrote this about humility. The focus on health in the soul is humility. If your soul is healthy, you'll be humble. While the root of inward corruption is pride. In the spiritual life, nothing stands still. We are either constantly growing downward in humility or we shall steadily swell up and run to seed under the influence of pride. We're never standing still. We're either going down the humility or going upward into pride in our lives. We're either growing more humble under the hand of God or we're growing more prideful under the influence of this world. We're never at a standstill. But today we're going to look at one of Paul's letters. It's the letter to the church at Philippi and how humility leads to unity in the church. It leads to unity in all of our relationships as we submit to Christ and to one another. You know, the world tells us to be strong, to be proud, to be confident, to be arrogant, popular. These people will win and get what they want. That's what the world tells us. And if we're not careful, we'll teach our kids that. Jesus says the humble and gentle will inherit the earth. Jesus was always counterculture. It says in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. You know, I've watched, I like to watch movies. Janice and I, that's at our age, that's a night on the town is to make some popcorn and watch a movie together. And uh, there's some movies that if they're on TV, I always watch them. You know, one of them is The Natural with Robert Redford. Anybody seen that before? Uh, that's my favorite. It's a baseball movie. Man, I'm telling you, I love that movie. Another one is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And as Stephanie Causey has never seen that movie. Just blew me away. How many of you have seen that? Okay, yes. Steve uh, Martin, John Candy. This great movie. If you haven't watched it, you need to go watch it. But another one is called City Slickers. Uh, it's with Billy Crystal. Anybody seen that one? Yeah. It's another one. If it's on, I watch it. Baseball guys, want to be cowboys. You know, when I was, Jerry King was here. He's a cowboy and I'm an Indian. I'm a, he's a country boy. I'm a city slicker. And 
I would get out there and play cowboy at his house with him sometimes. And, but if you remember the movie City Slickers, this movie was about some men who paid money to play cowboy and join a cattle drive. And one of the characters, his name was Curly. He was the head cowboy. He looked kind of like the Marlboro Man. And the theologian cowboy named Curly, this was his famous line from the movie. He held his finger up. He said, do you know what the secret of life is? He said this. He had his finger like this. He said this. One of the cowboys says, your finger? And Curly said, no, one thing, just one thing. You stick to that and the rest doesn't mean anything. Now, he said something a little different, but I can't read that in church. But one of the cowboys responded, but what is that one thing? Well, Paul understood this one thing when he wrote Philippians 1.21. He said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, the book of Philippians is many times called the epistle of joy or encouragement. Paul wrote this epistle from the Mamertine prison in Rome. Boy, I'm telling you, somebody doesn't want this sermon to finish. That's okay. This Mamertine prison is where they sent prisoners to be executed. So from prison on death row, Paul wrote Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite scriptures. Says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it out, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, this scripture has encouraged me over the years with the truth that our salvation begins with Christ. Our salvation is secure in him as he sustains it, and this salvation will end when his work is fulfilled in us and we stand with Christ in eternity. But that's so much encouragement in those scriptures. And this man wrote this book of joy and encouragement from a prison cell waiting his possible execution, which eventually happened. But this was always a source of joy for Paul as he knew and he saw God working and through his church. Philippians 1, 12 and 13, Paul is telling the church and he counts it joy to suffer for the advancement of the gospel. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. And in verse 13, he speaks of sharing the gospel message with the entire Roman imperial guard. While he was in prison, he was sharing Jesus with all of these Roman soldiers. Can you imagine being handcuffed to the Apostle Paul if you were not a believer? You know, Wearsby commentator that I like to read he, he, he calls Philippians 1 the, the first chapter the single mind he said the secret of joy in spite of circumstances is having the single mind which is Christ first and he calls Philippians 2 the submissive mind the secret to joy in spite of people is the submissive mind others second Philippians 1 is Christ first Philippians 2 others Second, now we're not a doormat, but Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So the passage this morning is from Philippians 2, 1 through 11, if you'll stand for the reading of God's word.
I'm going to read the first four verses to start this morning. It says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, unified in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much for allowing me to stand before my church, your flock. Lord, I thank you for this passage that we're reading this morning, for your word that gives us encouragement, that makes us brave. And Lord, it wants to make us, give us a desire, Lord, to, to serve others as we serve you. Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a spirit of, of humility and unity in this church. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. You've done so much work here. And I pray as we go forward in this next year that you would help us even more to love one another, to serve one another as we live for you and share the gospel with this, this community, this state, this country, this world. Lord, you give us all a, a burden for the lost, a burden for our neighbor, and Lord, just a burden to know, to know more about you. Thank you, Jesus. And I ask this in your name. Amen. So verse 1 there, it says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection in mercy. In some translations, that part starts off with therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, you got to go back and see, well, what therefore was he talking about? And in Philippians 1.27, Paul said, just one thing, that single mind thinking like Curly talked about, the theologian Curly, that one thing, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. You know, these first two chapters of Philippians, Paul is, is speaking of relationships between believers. He speaks of unity, speaks of us agreeing with one another, loving each other, working together with one mind and one purpose. In these first four verses, Paul prepares the reader for reasons we should have unity, we should have humility, we should have love among God's people. They're worded in questions, if you notice here, it says if, if, if. John MacArthur speaks of four divinely bestowed realities that motivate unity as believers live in unity of one mind and one spirit. These four realities we just read, the realities of the encouragement of Christ, the consolation of love, the fellowship of the spirit, and affection and mercy, if they're true, he's saying, then do these things in verses three, 2, 3, and 4. You know, these realities, they belong to us as believers, to the church, and they bring unity to the church. The first reality is the encouragement of Christ. 
Encouragement in the Greek is the word paraklesis, and this word speaks of providing comfort to a person who has experienced loss. As believers, we should understand the comfort of belonging to Christ. As a child of God, Christ carries us. He carries our burdens. He provides comfort for the pain of this life. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17 says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. The second reality is the consolation of love. And this talks about, again, comfort, the comfort of love. One commentary I was reading said the idea is communicated by the Latin word fortis, which means brave. The love of God gives us strength. It makes us strong. It makes us brave. As a church, we become united in purpose as we are made strong and brave, as we share the same comfort that we have been shown by Christ. We can stand firm and continue together for the truth of the gospel as we give love and we receive love. One of the things I love about getting to serve in this church, especially on Sunday nights as new people come in the doors, people that are just full, just full of shame and regret, just full of, uh, they just were afraid to even come in the door because of judgment or wherever it might be and get to come up alongside those people and to love them and to make sure they understand that Jesus loves them just where they're at in their lives. It's a blessing to be able to do that. This comfort of love that we've received from God, we share with others as believers. The third reality is the fellowship of the Spirit. You know, our fellowship with God is through the Spirit of God that's living within us as believers. You know, as a person that's not a believer, they don't understand the blessing of having this fellowship of the Spirit. I remember before I surrendered my life 26 years ago, every time I came around, my, my mother and my brother, and, and they were worshiping and singing and reading Scripture, having church there in my brother's house. Man, I, I had to get out of there. Because I did, I did I, my spirit just could not... Just could not take that. My spirit was following the things of this world. The fellowship that we have with one another and with our Savior, the Spirit of God indwelling us is a blessing that so many times I think we take for granted as believers. We don't thank God enough for. Our fellowship through the Spirit in the church is a tremendous blessing that is ours as children of God. This fellowship brings sweet fellowship and it brings joy in the church. You think about some of the closest relationships you have. I don't, about, I don't know about you, but mine are right here. I can still remember years of my life I had no true friendship, no true fellowship. Then God brought me into his family, brought me into his church. And I finally understood what it meant to have fellowship in the Spirit as I had fellowship with other believers in Christ my brothers and sisters there's some in this church I can truly call my brother 
You know, we say that, Brother Scott, I grew up in, in my churches, you called everybody brother, whatever their last name was, and, and, uh, and that is a blessing to be able to say that. Brother Robert is my brother, and I know he would do anything for me. You can't find that type of love and fellowship in the world. In the world, as soon as what you have to give them is gone, they're gone. But in the church, it's much different because we have this fellowship, this spirit that interweaves our hearts together in the love of Christ, in the humility of Christ. This fourth reality is the affection and mercy that we receive from Christ. The love and mercy of God is something we as believers should be fully aware of and be thankful for. Our life should express our gratitude for all these gifts that he's given us. Lamentations 3.22 and 23 talks about the love of God and his mercy. It says, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So these spiritual blessings as believers, they should motivate us and lead to a response of spiritual unity. Some of the responses should include, you know, us being of the same mind and the same purpose, maintaining a devoted love for one another, but also for those outside of the family of God, those who are not believers yet, that we come up beside them and share the love of Christ so they can see the humility of Christ, the love of Christ in us. We should be marked as people who have deep love for one another. Turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, and I'm going to start in verse 14. It says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his fellow brother, fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Now we should be marked as people that show love, but not just love in word, but in action, in deed. Now back to Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul tells us that we should be united in how we think, how we love. We should be united in, in spirit, united in, in one purpose. You know, that, that part united in the spirit, John MacArthur calls it, and I love this term, he calls it being one soul. One souled, where we are united by the truth of God's word. To be one souled is to live in unselfish harmony with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The same mind, love for one another, being united in spirit, makes it natural for us to work together for one purpose. That one thing, to bring glory to God and to lead others to the Savior. You know, Paul speaks of this one-souled unity 
in Colossians. I'm going to ask you to turn one more time to Colossians. Turn to chapter 3 and verse 12. We're going to be, read through verse uh, 16. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. We look at verses 3 and 4 of this Scripture, Paul is telling us, we look over, I'm sorry, in Philippians 2. He tells us for us to be able to reach this being one souled or humbled in heart, there are some things that we must guard our heart against. He tells us to do nothing out of selfless ambition or conceit. I had to look that up. What's he talking about? You know, we think of ambition, it's usually somebody that really wants to you know, to do great things, you know, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that unless we have the wrong motivation. Self of ambition is about personal goals while conceit seeks personal glory and acclaim. Both are about the person and what they want, what they want to accomplish, how they want to be seen and want to have that pat on the back that you're doing a great job. Another way to say this is don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Don't be arrogant. Don't be prideful. In Celebrate Recovery, one of the first things I learned about myself and most people do after they start getting honest with God is the root of all of their sin is selfishness. Selfishness in our actions and also in our thoughts. John MacArthur said this about the danger of selfishness and conceit in the church. Even when not outwardly manifested, selfishness breeds anger, resentment, and jealousy. No church, even the most doctrinally sound and spiritually mature, is immune from the threat of this sin. And nothing can more quickly divide and weaken a church. Selfless ambition is often clothed in pious rhetoric by those who are convinced of their own superior abilities in promoting the cause of Christ. Verse 3 of Philippians 2 tells us, But in humility consider others more important than ourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. One definition of humility that I really like is humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Warren Wearsby spoke of the single mind in chapter 1 and the submissive mind there in chapter 2. And he said this, if we have the single mind of chapter one, that one thing to bring glory to God with our lives, then we'll have no problem with the submissive mind of Philippians 2. We'll no, have no problem doing these, these things. 
In chapter 2, Paul gives us four examples of this submissive mind. Epaphrodus, I think that's how you say his name. I know Rebecca said, say it like you know it. Right, Rebecca? In verses 25 through 30, Paul talks about him having the submissive mind. Timothy in verses 19 through 24. Paul himself in verses 12 through 18. But our ultimate example is Christ. And that's where he speaks of our servant Savior in verses 11, 5 through 11. So look at verses 5 through 11 in Philippians 2. He says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, I grew up in a church where the King James Version Bible was used. And I memorized this verse as a kid. And and, the King James Version says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul tells us that this mind being in us is accepting or adopting the attitude of of Jesus Christ. And this attitude was described in verses 3 and 4 where he told us not to be selfish, not to want to put ourselves out there to be seen. He told us to put others before ourselves. We should look on the interest of others and not on our interest all the time. Christ is the greatest example of these qualities of humility and service. He tells us we're to adopt this attitude. The only begotten Son of God was born in the most lowly of families, in the most lowly of places. You know, we just celebrated Christmas. Many times we get so caught up in everything that Christmas is not, I'm just ready for it to be over with. This passage describes so beautifully the the incarnation, the coming of the second person of the Trinity to be born a man, to live a perfect life, and to die on a cross for the sins of mankind. But Paul reminds us that Jesus existed, did not begin in Bethlehem. He is eternally equal with God. In Revelations, Jesus called himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He says that he's always existed and will always exist. John chapter 1 says this so beautifully. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. You know, as Jesus, our Savior, our God, as He walked this earth in human flesh, He had all power and authority. He had power and authority over death. He raised the dead. Time and nature. He calmed 
raging seas and storms. He calmed the, the maniac. And when they seen him, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. But as God in human flesh, he still felt sorrow like you and I do. He still felt fatigue at times. He still felt hunger. And he was still tempted as we are, but without sinning. You know, he was God in the flesh of man, but he never used his power or authority for personal advantage. He never used his power and authority to have privilege. It says he didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't have a big bank account full of money. He didn't have all these things that we put so much comfort in. We put so much of our dependence in. He didn't have any of these things. He never used his power and authority to receive glory from men. These verses in Philippians tell us that even though Jesus was God, he still had compassion for us, mankind, and came as a servant willing to step out of heaven to die for sinful man, for a world that not, did not welcome him, that did not accept him they rejected him but he still took our sin upon himself you know we can't forget that night that he washed the disciples feet he also washed Judas's feet the one that was going to betray him second Corinthians 5 21 says he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God I'm going to go ahead and ask our musicians to come on back up to the stage. You know, a self-serving and arrogant spirit will ruin a church. I'm going to say that again. A self-serving and arrogant spirit will ruin a church. But genuine Christ-like humility will build it up and make it that city on a hill that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. As we submit to Christ, who is, in, is the head of the church, the chief shepherd, as we submit to each other, as we adopt this humble servant attitude of Jesus, this drives us to sweet fellowship, sweet humility, sweet unity. You know, these scriptures teach us to guard against any selfishness, any prejudice, any jealousy that could lead to division in God's church. You know, as we start this new year, I myself, I, I'm, I'm going to commit by the grace of God to be one in the church that promotes unity by serving others and putting others before myself. I commit to safeguarding the unity of this church body and guarding my heart against the self-serving spirit. And I challenge you to do the same. The last part of this passage speaks of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as Savior, if you have not bowed your knee and surrendered to Christ in this life, the day will come when you will stand before God, but it will be too late in the next life. The Bible says, now today is the day of salvation while Christ is calling you. To himself. 
I pray that you'll come and be saved today before it's too late. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the example that you set for us in humility and service and emptying ourselves. Lord, I'm so thankful, Lord, that you saved me, that you came to my life 26 years ago and pulled me out of the, the pit that I had placed myself in. I'm thankful, Jesus, that you are still working in my heart today. But Lord, I ask you to make me humble, to give me a heart to serve others as I serve you. Lord, don't allow there any type of selfish attitude or self-serving attitude to rise up in my heart. I pray that you'd help me to shepherd this flock with your love, your gentleness, your humility. Thank you again, Lord, for what you're doing in this church and what you're going to do in this upcoming year. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Come if you need to pray, if you need to make a commitment to Christ, if you need to be born again, please come.